This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Europe, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Chapter 18. What Might Have Been With the right political and moral leadership, this could all have worked out differently. Chancellor Merkel and her predecessors would not have been unsupported or unaided had they taken a different set of steps from the beginning. They could have started by asking themselves the question Europe never did. Should Europe be a place to which anybody in the world can move and call themselves at home? Should it be a haven for absolutely anybody in the world fleeing war? Is it the job of Europeans to provide a better standard of living in our continent to anybody in the world who just wants it? To the second and third of these questions, the European publics would have said no. About the first question, they would have felt torn. That is why the supporters of mass migration, who would have said yes to all three, found it convenient to elide the boundaries between those fleeing war and those fleeing something else. What, after all, such people asked, is the huge difference between being at risk from bombs and being at risk from hunger? Had Chancellor Merkel, her contemporaries, and her predecessors thought all this through before transforming their continent, they, should have, they could have consulted Aristotle, among other great philosophers of Europe. From him, they would have learned why these questions seemed so complex. They were trying to weigh up the balance not between good and evil, but between competing values, on this occasion justice and mercy. When such virtues appear to be in contravention, Aristotle suggests it is because one of them is being misunderstood. Throughout this era of uncontrolled migration, mercy has consistently appeared to triumph. It is the virtue towards which it is easiest to pay homage, the one with the swiftest short-term benefits and the one more admired in the society in which those benefits are received. Of course, it was rarely asked how merciful it really was to encourage people to cross the globe, to reach a continent with few houses and few jobs where they would be ever less wanted. Yet, justice, which took such a backseat even as all the laws of the continent were trampled upon, also had a claim. And if the appeal to justice to enforce the Dublin Three Treaty or the laws of the repatriation of failed applicants had seemed like so much paperwork, then there ought to have been an appeal to a greater justice. When justice did emerge in the argument, it emerged only as the justice demanded by or for those arriving. The absent party in all this, for whom justice was never considered, were the peoples of Europe. They were people to whom things were done, whose own appeals, even when they could be voiced, were not listened to. In the great migration movements, the decisions of Merkel and her predecessors had, ridden, had overridden all their rights to justice. Those on the liberal wing of Europe's political spectrum had reason to feel aggrieved about the way in which their customs and laws had been trodden upon and about the seemingly endless changes to their liberal societies, changes that endangered the carefully balanced ecosystems of which such societies were comprised. Liberals in Europe might rightly have wondered whether societies that are the product of lengthy political and cultural evolutions could be sustained with immigration at such rates that the front lines of the mass migration era continually involved threats to sexual, religious, and racial minorities should have alerted far more than liberals than it did to the possibility that, in pursuit of a liberal immigration policy, they might just lose their liberal societies. An appeal to justice of a different sort could just as well have come from those of a more conservative mindset. Such people might, for instance, have taken the view of Edmund Burke, 
who in the 18th century made the central conservative insight that a culture and a society are not things run for the convenience of people who happen to be here right now, but a deep pact between the dead, the living, and those yet to be born. In such a view of society, however greatly you might wish to benefit from an endless supply of cheap labor, a wider range of cuisine or the salvaging of a generation's conscience, you would still not have the right to wholly transform your society. Because that which you inherited that is good should also be passed on. Even were you to decide that some of the views or lifestyles of your ancestors could be improved upon, it does not follow that you should hand over to the next generation a society that is chaotic, fractured, and unrecognizable. By 2015, Europe had already failed the easiest part of the immigration conundrum. From the post-war period up until the seismic movements of the present century, it had set about fundamentally changing the nature of European society out of personal comfort, lazy, lazy thinking, and political ineptitude. So, it is not surprising that it also failed the harder test, which was that the migration conundrum that Chancellor Merkel confronted in her live televised discussion with the solitary Lebanese teenager, but then buckled under when it came to the untold millions, a buckling that was precisely the opposite way around to most people, who abhor the crowds but pity the individual. She had misunderstood the virtues. Merkel could have been merciful to those in need whilst not being unjust to the peoples of Europe. How could this have been achieved? The first way would have been to go right back to the basics of the problem, principally the question of who Europe is for. Those who believe it is for the world have never explained why this process should be one way, why Europeans going anywhere else in the world is colonialism, whereas the rest of the world coming to Europe is just and fair. Nor have they ever suggested that the migration movement has any end other than the turning of Europe into a place belonging to the world, with other countries remaining the home of the people of those countries. They have also only succeeded to the extent that they have by lying to the public and concealing their aims. Had the leaders of Western Europe told their publics in the 1950s or at any point since that, since that the aim of migration was to fundamentally alter the concept of Europe and make it a home for the world, then the people of Europe would most likely have risen up and overthrown those governments. Even before the migration crisis of recent years, the greatest challenge was always over genuine refugees. Like their publics, political leaders held consistently conflicted views on those refugees, Conflicted views expressed not just to one another, but within themselves. Nobody could allow a child to drown in the Mediterranean, but nor could it be viable to allow the world in if the world was on our shores. In the summer of 2016, I got talking with two Bangladeshi men in Greece. One of them, a 26-year-old, had come through India, Pakistan, Iran, and Turkey to get to Lesbos. On his journey, he said, I saw dead bodies everywhere. He spent 15,000 euros on this journey and said that he had to leave Bangladesh because he was involved with the political opposition. My father is a bank manager, he said. It is not about money. It is about life. Everyone loves their mother country, but 9 out of 10 people are here because they want to live. The evidence suggests otherwise, namely that the economic attractions are the main lure. Yet, even if everyone coming to Europe was coming in the face of an imminent death back home, there is no practical way that Europe could take in those untold millions. So, even a refinement of the errors of European migration is itself based on an error. Some people say that the crisis is, not pri is primarily not Europe's but the world's crisis, that even talking about this represents a Eurocentric way of thinking about things. 
But there is no reason why Europeans should not be or feel Eurocentric. Europe is the home of the European peoples, and we are entitled to be home-centric as much as are the Americans, Indians, Pakistanis, Japanese, and all other peoples. The follow-on claim that we should therefore focus our energies on solving the problems of the world is both selfish and a diversion. It is not in Europe's power to solve the situation in Syria. Much less is it within our gift to simultaneously raise living standards in sub-Saharan Africa, solve all the world conflicts, protect liberal rights universally, and rectify all problems of political corruption across the world. Those who present these as problems that can be solved by Europe should start by explaining their detailed plan for solving the problem of Eritrea, much less finding it on a map. Anyone in power with a genuine desire to help migrants could enact a number of policies. They could, for instance, prioritize a policy of keeping migrants in the vicinity of the country from which they are fleeing. Migration experts including Paul Collier and David Goodhart have, even before the current crisis, explained the importance of such a policy. It avoids the cultural challenges that arise from encouraging people to travel to the far end of a different continent. It also allows people to return home more easily than whatever the disaster they are fleeing when the disaster they are fleeing from comes to an end. Throughout the Syrian crisis, Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan have taken in huge numbers of refugees. Britain and other nations have contributed huge sums of aid to relieve the situation in refugee camps and other places in which Syrian refugees are living. Policies like those suggested by Collier of European countries paying migrants to do work in Middle Eastern countries, where, for reasons of local sentiment, current labor laws often preclude refugees from entering the workforce, might be constructive. Such ideas would be predicated on the view that it is better for a Syrian to be able to work in Jordan than to be unemployed in Scandinavia. What is more, the money that a country like Sweden now pays to house immigrants in Sweden is spendthrift, even if the concerns of immigrants and potential immigrants were the only concerns of the Swedish government. The housing shortage in Sweden, which, as in the UK, is largely caused by immigration, creates huge problems for the Swedish government. Not least financial problems. In southern Europe, European countries such as Italy or Greece, a temporary solution for migrants is to house them in tents. Because of Sweden's cold climate, it costs between 50 and 100 times more to house a migrant in a tent than it does in the Middle East. As Dr. Tino Sanandaji has pointed out, it costs more for 3,000 migrants to be housed in temporary accommodation tents in Sweden than it does to fund outright the largest refugee camp in Jordan, housing around 100,000 Syrian refugees. One other policy upon which European leaders could have embarked from the beginning was to ensure that asylum claims were processed outside Europe. For legal and organizational reasons, it makes no sense to begin the process of working out who is a legitimate asylum seeker and who is not once migrants are inside Europe. This was the policy of the Australian government when they experienced over the last decade a flow of migrant boats setting off for their country mainly from Indonesia. As with the situation in the Mediterranean, a number of the boats sank, and there were huge outpourings of public sympathy for the migrants. But asylum centers in Australia were full, and the processing became a legal nightmare once migrants were in Australia. Although the stretch of water is far wider than the Mediterranean and the numbers were never of a comparable size, the Australian government instituted an emergency policy that swiftly saw a decline in the number of boats setting out. They used Nauru and Manus Islands, 
off the coast of Papua New Guinea as holding centers and process the asylum claimants there. Australian government vessels also increasingly located and turned back vessels heading to Australia illegally. The situation is not precisely analogous, but Australian officials have said in private since the beginning of the European crisis that this is the way in which Europe will have to deal with its crisis at some point anyway. With the political will and financial incentive, there is no reason why European governments could not institute arrangements with various North African governments to set up facilities on their territory. A process of leasing territory in Libya is not impossible at some stage. It would certainly be feasible in Tunisia and Morocco, and the French government could help persuade the Algerians to cooperate in a similar manner. Egypt could also be incentivized as part of its European cooperation packages. Processing claimants in North Africa would not only have a disincentivizing effect, as it has had in the Australian case, it would also give the European asylum system a chance to catch its breath. Another solution would be a, a concerted, Europe-wide effort to organize the deportation of all those found to have no asylum claim. This is easier said than done. Millions of people who are currently in Europe have no legal right to be there. Some might welcome assistance to return home, having found themselves working for gangs or otherwise finding life in Europe less appealing than expected. Still, this would be a monumental task to undertake. But it would be better to do it than to pretend, as numbers of the German and Swedish governments have been doing in recent years, pretend to do it while having no real intent of doing so. To include some people in a society necessarily means excluding others. Governments found it very easy to dwell on the, on the sympathetic language of inclusion, but their publics, including legitimate asylum seekers, need also to hear some of the language of exclusion. Another policy that would assist in a sensible migration policy and help restore public confidence would be a system of temporary asylum. If, during the crucial months of 2015, Chancellor Merkel had called on European countries to take in a certain number of legitimate and properly vetted refugees from Syria until such a time as Syria returned to stability, there may have been significantly more public and political support. The fact that there was not, and the reason why the public as well as governments remained so opposed to Merkel's quota system, was because those countries knew that asylum is nearly always for good. It is hard to convince the Swedish public that Syrian migrants are going to remain in their country only until Syria stabilizes when Sweden has tens of thousands of asylum seekers from the Balkans, which has been at peace for two decades. The nature of temporary asylum obviously has its own problems. People's lives continue once they migrate. Their children enter the school system, and other aspects of normalization occur which make the return of whole families to their country of origin ever harder. But that is a reason why European governments would have to be strict with such a policy. If people apply for asylum and are given it, then they must recognize that the arrangement is benevolent but not permanent. Much confidence in the asylum system and the migration issue as a whole could be reclaimed if such a policy were implemented. In order to bring an end to the ongoing migration problem and turn around the challenge that already exists, it would also be necessary for Europe's political leaders to acknowledge where they have gone wrong in the past. They might, for instance, acknowledge that if Europe is concerned about an aging population, there are more sensible policies than importing the next generations of Europeans from Africa. They might concede that while diversity may be advantageous in small numbers, in large numbers it would irrevocably end society as we know it. They might then stress that they do not actually want to fundamentally change our societies. 
This would be a painful concession for the political class, but it would have overwhelming support from the European public. In recent years, those publics have been exceptionally accepting of immigrants while opposed to mass immigration. Long before their political leaders told them that it was acceptable to have concerns about migration, they knew this. Before the sociologists proved it, they knew that immigration weakened all sense of societal trust. And before the politicians admitted it, the public were struggling to get their children into oversubscribed local schools. It was the public who were told that health tourism was not a problem, even as they queued for appointments in waiting rooms filled with people from other countries. The public also knew long before their political leaders that the benefits the migrants undoubtedly brought were not endless, and they sensed long before it became acceptable to say so that migration on such a scale would fundamentally change their countries. They noticed that some of the major battles of the 20th century over rights were having to be refought again in the 21st century because of a growing number of opponents. They intimated that when it came to social liberalism, Islam was simply the slower child in the class. Just one result of which was that in the early 21st century, when Europe had hoped to have settled many of the issues, not least the separation of religion from politics and the law, the whole of society was having to go at the speed of the slowest child in class. Thus, the increasing discussions about whether women should cover their faces in public or be taken by their husband to their own special type of court if they happened to be of a particular faith. The first arrivals benefited Europe by bringing a different culture, their vibrancy, and their cuisine. But what did the 10 millionth bring that was different from all those before? The European public was far ahead of the politicians in recognizing that the benefits were not endless. Long before the politicians noticed, the public already knew that a continent which imports the world's people will also import the world's problems. And contrary to the race relations industry, it turned out that the immigrations into, immigrants into Europe often exhibited far more differences than similarities to the resident populations and towards each other, and that the larger the numbers, the greater the dissimilarities. For the problems that exist are not just between minorities and their adopted country, but between various minorities in their adopted country. Despite the much-vaunted horror of Islamophobia trailed by anti-racists and others in Britain, those who have actually killed Muslims in Britain have been overwhelmingly other Muslims murdering them for doctrinal reasons. There has been one case of a Ukrainian neo-Nazi who was in the UK for a matter of hours before killing his Muslim victim. Otherwise, the most serious attacks on Muslims have been carried out by others of the same sect. Many Muslims from the minority Ahmadiyya sect came to Britain because they are so persecuted in their native Pakistan. But it was a Sunni Muslim from Bradford who traveled up to Glasgow before Easter 2016 to stab the Muslim Ahmadiyya shopkeeper Assad Shah repeatedly in the head for, not, for what his killer regarded as apostasy and heresy. It was not the knuckle-dragging white racists, but other members of the Muslim communities in Scotland who caused the family of the murdered shopkeeper to flee the country in the wake of that murder. Today, in Britain, it is rarely white racists who openly advocate the murder of minorities, but clerics from Pakistan who tour the United Kingdom preaching to thousands of British citizens the necessity of murdering other Muslims who disagree with them. Such problems within minorities are a foretaste of the intolerance to come. Of even greater concern to the majority is the observation that many of those who come to Europe, even when they have no desire to hurt or kill anyone, seem happy about transforming European societies. 
Politicians cannot address this because they have colluded in it or helped cover it up. But it cannot go unnoticed when a Muslim of Syrian background such as Lamia Kador, for instance, goes on German television at the height of the migration crisis and tells the nation that in the future, being German will not mean having blue eyes and blonde hair, but will instead be about having a migration background. Only in Germany would such a sentiment continue, for the time being, to get applause. But most Europeans do not appreciate this common glee over radical changes to their society, and it would be wise for mainstream political figures to acknowledge this fact and concede that the resulting fears are not unfounded. As part of that concession, it would also be wise to extend the parameters of what is acceptable in mainstream politics. Parties of the center-right and center-left had found it enormously useful in recent decades to portray people who did not sign up in their narrow consensus as racist, fascist, or Nazi, even when they know that they are no such thing. They have been able to position themselves as centrists and anti-fascists while smearing all opponents with the crimes of the last century. The complex situation in Europe, of course, is that there are parties which had fascist or racist origins. Belgium's Vlaams Belang, France's Front National, and the Sweden Democrats all have histories that have included racism. In different ways, all have changed to some extent in recent decades. The political mainstream finds it useful to pretend that such parties are the only ones on our continent who do not change, or are incapable of changing, or lie and conceal their true nature even after years of changing. However, at some point, people will have to allow the political far-right to moderate, in the same way that many socialist and far-left parties were allowed to enter the mainstream and moderated their views in the process. These nationalist parties should be allowed to occupy a place in the political debate without being forever charged with the sins of their past. The move from Jean-Marie Le Pen to his daughter Marine Le Pen, for instance, is clearly a move of significance. A true devotee of racist nationalist politics would find it harder to join today's Front National than they would have done the party of Marine's father. There are, of course, serious questions around all edges. Still, these parties have problems with people trying to get involved who hold to Holocaust denial and similarly extreme views. This is in part, as with the EDL in England and Pegida in Germany, a result of the entire media and political class telling people that this is what such parties stand for, and effectively sending the actual extremists to join them. It is also true that these parties include people with rancid political views, but so too, it must be noted, do mainstream parties of the political left and right. It is not possible to regard par parties that often pull ahead of other mainstream parties as being wholly Nazi, fascist, or racist, since it should be obvious to any politician with experience of the public in any of these countries that they are not largely Nazi, fascist, or racist. In other words, it will be necessary to broaden the political consensus and to accept thoughtful and clearly non-fascist parties once described as far-right at the political table. Not only would it be unwise to continue to marginalize people who have spent years warning about events just as those warnings were coming true, it would also be unwise to continue a situation which would mean that any truly fascist parties emerging in the years ahead, such as Jobbik in Hungary, Ataka in Bulgaria, or Golden Dawn in Greece, can be identified accurately and without the accusation that this label has been used about almost everybody. Europeans have been deflating the language of anti-fascism ahead of a time when they might need it. Warnings of fascism should be used exceptionally carefully in Europe. In recent years, 
they have been worn down and become so commonplace as to be rendered almost meaningless. Finally, it would be an unsustainable position for the political and media elites of Europe to continue to pretend that the views of the majority of the public are unacceptable, whilst the pro-mass migration views of a comparatively small and extreme fringe are the only legitimate views for the mainstream in European politics. It may be the case that the issue of racism has to adapt in other ways. One way to defang the constant frivolous uses of the term would be to ensure that the cost in social terms for making the change falsely comes at least as serious as being guilty of the charge. Or it may be that Europeans become so mired in accusations and counter-accusations from and towards every direction in the years ahead that there is an implicit agreement that, unpleasant as racism is, it is one of a number of nasty facets to which some people are prone, and not all the basis, and not the basis for all political and cultural positioning. Any solution to our crisis would also involve not only a fresh attitude towards our future, but a more balanced attitude towards our past. It is not possible for a society to survive if it routinely suppresses and otherwise fights against its own origins. Just as a nation could not thrive if it forbade any criticism of its past, so no nation can survive if it suppresses everything that is positive about its past. Europe has reason to feel tired and worn down by its past, but it could also approach the past with an air of self-forgiveness as much as self-reproach. At the very least, Europe needs to continue to engage with the glories as well as the pains of its past. It is not possible to give a comprehensive answer to this difficult problem here. But for my own part, I cannot help feeling that much of the future of Europe will be decided on what our attitude is towards the church buildings and other great cultural buildings of our heritage standing in our midst. Around the questions of whether we hate them, ignore them, engage with them, or revere them, a huge amount will depend. Again, it is worth pondering the question of what would happen if the bubble were to pop and the next generations of Europeans suddenly experienced a decline in living standards because people in the rest of the world were to catch up with them, or because the debts accumulated through Europe's expectations of normal living standards piled up beyond acceptable limits. Enjoyable as it might be while it lasts, it probably goes without saying that the life of a mere consumer lacks any real meaning and purpose. Instead, it reveals a gap in human experience that every society in history has attempted to address, and which something else will try to fill if our own societies do not apply themselves to it. A society that sells itself solely on its pleasures is one that can swiftly lose its attractions. That post-nightclub convert had experienced the pleasures, but then came to the realization that they were not enough. A society that says we are defined exclusively by the bar and the nightclub, by self-indulgence and our sense of entitlement, cannot be said to have deep roots or much likelihood of survival. But a society which holds that our culture consists of the cathedral, the playhouse, and the playing field, the shopping mall, and Shakespeare, has a chance. Still, there remains the unwillingness to confront these deeper issues, and each time it seems to come down to a sense of fatalism, in particular the sense that we have tried all these things before, why would we do all that again? This must be one of the reasons why appeals to Europeans to recapture their faith, even by church leaders, are not made in the admonitory tones of the past, but in a spirit of impeachment or even partial defeat. When Pope Benedict implored Europeans to behave as though God exists, he was acknowledging something that his predecessors were rarely able to accept, that some people today cannot believe, 
and that the church ought nevertheless to have some approach to them. Indeed, it was this appeal more than anything else that made the dying Oriana Falacci a believer in Pope Benedict, even whilst not being a believer in God. Elsewhere, the Pope appealed for a great gulf between religion and philosophy to be breached, specifically appealing that rather than being enemies, religion and philosophy must at least be in dialogue with one another. At the root of such appeals is an awareness that Europeans are unlikely to simply find or come up with another culture, or a better culture, and also an acknowledgement that modern Europeans from school upwards are currently doing a very poor job of celebrating a culture that has nurtured believers and doubters of previous generations, and may nurture believers and doubters in this generation too. A growing number of both believers and non-believers have begun to realize that during the potentially huge upheavals in the years ahead, it will not be enough to face them by first stripping ourselves absolutely bare. That practice is, of course, a particular part of the French tradition, and, what, and the reason why when the country seeks to circumscribe the wearing of the Islamic headscarf, or burqa, it has to excuse it by circumscribing the wearing of Jewish and Christian symbols as well. While many people will see the sense in this, it also risks a game of strip poker, in which you begin stripped down to nothing, whereas your opposite number has become fully clothed. It is possible that Islamic radicals will remain in France despite the ban on the wearing of the headscarf in certain public buildings, while it is also possible that Jews, caught between the Islamists and the stricter secularization they have provoked, will leave. Neither would be a desirable outcome. If the culture that shaped Western Europe has no part in its future, then there are other cultures and traditions that will surely step in to take its place. To re-inject our own culture with some sense of a deeper purpose need not be a proselytizing mission, but simply an aspiration of which we should be aware. Of course, it is always possible that the tide of faith that began its long withdrawing roar of retreat in the 19th century will come back in again. But whether it does or not, amending of the culture will be possible if the religious think that those who have split off from the same tree are their greatest problem, while those on the secular branch try to saw themselves off from the tree as a whole. Many people can sense the pain of that separation and the resulting want of meaning that arises from the shallows. A split has occurred in our, in our culture that it will take the work of a generation to mend. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.